second Bible reading today is from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 44. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, How? See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he's been there four days. Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, my name's Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church, and I'm going to be uh, preaching for us today. It'd be great if you could keep your Bible open to the story we've just read, um, and we'll be thinking about that in a little bit. But as we begin, I'm going to pray, so please pray with me. Great God above, we know that you are the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And so as we think about this tough topic today, please draw us near to you, helping us to find solace in your arms. And in particular, would you comfort those of us who are in the midst of suffering right now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, Stephen Fry, I don't know if you know who that is, he's a famous uh, atheist uh, actor and comedian, and he caused a bit of a stir. He was doing an interview, and he's obviously an atheist, and he was asked, though, suppose it's all true, and you walk up to the pearly gates and you're confronted by God, what would you say to him? 
And do you know what his answer was? Uh, this is what he said. He said he'd say, bone cancer in children. What's that all about? How dare you create a world in which there's so much misery that's not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect such a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that's so full of injustice and pain? It's quite a sentence, isn't it? Quite a saying. And we might be a little bit taken aback by it. But you know what? I suspect that at times we've all felt similar to what Stephen Fry is saying. Now, maybe we weren't quite so aggressive or arrogant about it, but I think we've all felt that anger at suffering, the pain of suffering. And so we do, we cry out to God, God, why do you allow so much suffering? And as we ask that question, it's not a theoretical question, because every single one of us has experienced suffering of one kind or another. Some of us bigger than others, but we've all experienced it. And now, as I speak on suffering today, I do so humbly, aware that many of you have suffered more than I've suffered. Of course, I've had my challenges in life too, as some of you might know. I've got a blood condition. Uh, it seems like it will be with me for perhaps the rest of my life. And it involves regular blood tests, it involves regular doctor's appointments, it even involves injecting myself with a needle twice a week, which is uh, certainly not pleasant. But as tough as that is, I'm deeply aware, I know that it pales in comparison to what many of you have gone through, or what you're going through at the moment. I know that as we listen today, some of you are in the midst of a battle with cancer, your body is being ravaged by it or by the chemo and the treatment of it. And I know that others of you have to sit there and watch as your loved ones are going through such a horrendous battle. I know that others of you are mourning loved ones. You've lost wives or husbands, parents or friends, maybe even children. I know others of you are struggling with mental health challenges, depression or anxiety or something else. And each day feels like a constant battle just to get out of bed. See, this isn't a theoretical question. We echo Stephen Fry's uh, question or thoughts with tears in our eyes as we or our loved ones suffer so much. And so then we come to this question today, not wanting a theoretical answer, but needing to know the answer for our suffering and why God allows it. And so before we do consider what God has to say about it, it's worth briefly thinking about uh, the suggestion or the answer that others have given. Now, traditional philosophy gives us two options. It says that either God is strong enough, but not good enough to stop evil, or God is good enough, but not strong enough. Uh, this was originally suggested by the Greek philosopher Epicurus, but it was also restated in more modern times by an atheist thinker called David Hume, and this is how he put it. He said, is God willing 
to prevent evil, but not able, then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing, then he's malevolent. And you see what he's saying? He's saying there's only two options. Either God is impotent, he's a well-meaning weakling, he's good and he wants to stop suffering, but he's just not strong enough to be able to do it. Perhaps he's a little bit like us, only stronger. He looks at the suffering around and he hates it and he wishes it would stop but he's not strong enough to do anything about it. He's relegated to sitting on the sidelines with his hands tied, watching the suffering of the world. So that's the first option, that God is good enough, but he's not strong enough. The other option is the reverse, that God is strong enough to be able to stop suffering, but he just doesn't want to, he's not good enough. This option says that God's like a malevolent dictator. He's just so evil that he doesn't want to stop suffering. Perhaps he's a little bit like Mao Zedong or Idi Amin. He's completely in control. He has the whole world in the palm of his hand and he could stop suffering with but a thought. Yet, he doesn't. Because he enjoys the suffering. He enjoys watching us squirm. See, this view says he's strong enough but not good enough. And it's suggested that these are the only two options. But actually, there's a third option. See, the problem with Hugh's comment is that it assumes that because we can't think of a good reason for God to allow suffering, that there must not be one. But we know that's not how the world works. We know that there's plenty of things that we can't see that actually exist. For example, how many dust mites do you see on the screen at the moment, on the camera here? Hopefully none, but we all know that they're there. We know they're floating in the air. We know that's how things work. Just because we can't see something, it doesn't automatically mean it doesn't exist. And just because we may not be able to think of a good reason for God to allow suffering, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Because what God makes clear to us in the Bible is that, in fact, He does have good reasons for allowing suffering. See, the picture the Bible paints is that God is a good God. He is a strong God. But He's a God who has good reasons for allowing suffering. What are those reasons? Well, there's actually quite a lot that the Bible gives, and we don't have time to look in detail at every single one of them, but perhaps we'll have a think about a few of them. See, sometimes the Bible says that suffering is as a warning to wake us up to sin and to get us to repent and turn to God. We see this in Luke 13, where Jesus' disciples come to Jesus and ask about this tower that's collapsed and killed some people. And Jesus makes clear here that the point of that happening was to get people to repent and to turn to God. It's not that those in the tower were more evil or more deserving of, deserving of suffering, not at all. And Jesus explicitly says the opposite. He says that's not the case. But rather, it's a wake-up cry to the world, to sin, to get us to repent and to turn to God. C.S. Lewis, the famous author, uh, put it like this, he said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. 
speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, God shouts in our pain. It's a wake-up call to get us out of our slumber, to repent of our sin and turn to him. See, God uses suffering sometimes as a warning and a wake-up call. Another reason that the Bible gives for God allowing suffering is that sometimes it is a direct judgment of God. For example, in Acts 5, when God kills Ananias and Sapphira for trying to deceive him and lie to him, we see that that suffering is God's direct judgment against sin. Now, of course, it's very important that we understand that that's not always the case. It's not that every time we suffer, we should think, oh, this is meant to be a judgment against some particular sin that I've done. Certainly not. Suffering isn't always judgment against sin. But sometimes it is. Another reason God has for suffering is that it helps to equip us to be able to comfort others who are going through suffering. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And isn't that the way it works? Often those who are best able to give us comfort in the midst of our suffering are those who have suffered much themselves. They know when to listen and when to speak. They know the importance of walking alongside us in our suffering. And so that's one of the good reasons that God has for allowing us to suffer. It equips us to be able to help others who are suffering. And perhaps one more, one of God's reasons for allowing suffering is that it causes us to cling more tightly to Him. And we'll think about this one more in a minute. But what's clear as we look through the Bible, almost on every page, is that God is a good God who has good reasons for allowing suffering. It doesn't make it easy or enjoyable, certainly not. But he does have reasons. Those we've just thought about are many, many more. But part of the challenge, of course, is that it's not always easy, it's not always clear to figure out in the midst of suffering what those reasons are. We can't always say, oh, this is what God's good reason is at the moment for me suffering. No, there's often a mystery to it. My grandma sadly died a few years ago from dementia and as we watched her slowly fade away, as we watched her fade from the person she was to someone completely different, we didn't know what the reason was for that happening. In the midst of our suffering, we couldn't figure out the reasons. Certainly, we knew they existed because we know God is a good God who has good reasons. But we didn't know what they were in that moment. And that's often the case. There's mystery to suffering. And so then, how are we to handle it? Well, that's why the story of Lazarus is so helpful. It gives us a case study in suffering and often how God works. And so the story starts off with Lazarus getting sick, but fortunately for him and his sisters, Martha and Mary, they're good friends with a miracle-working healer. And so they send for Jesus, telling him Lazarus is sick. And now, obviously, the point of them saying that is they're expecting that Jesus will do something about it. 
And fair enough too, because did you see how it describes Jesus' relationship with them? Have a look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, isn't it interesting that we're told that Jesus loved them? We don't often see Jesus' relationships described like this. And so, it's clear that these are his close friends. And so, what would you expect him to do then? I'd expect him to instantly drop what he's doing and go to Lazarus. That's what I'd do if a good friend got sick. But did you see what he does? Have a look at verse 6. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I mean, isn't that incredible? It's stunning. Jesus has frequently healed strangers. Jesus has even healed at a long distance. But here, when one of his best friends are sick, he waits. He does nothing. He allows the suffering to continue. And isn't that often what life is like? Often we cry out to God for help in our suffering and he doesn't seem to answer. I still remember very clearly the night I found out that I had that blood condition. I still remember very clearly getting the phone call saying, go to hospital right now. I still remember very clearly Cassie rushing home from work. I still remember very clearly sitting in the hospital for that weekend and going to all sorts of scans. And I still remember very clearly being told that one of the possible causes of it was leukemia. And it was a very difficult weekend. And in the midst of it, I prayed that God would help. And yet, he didn't take it away. The suffering was still there. And that's often how things work. We cry out to God for help, but he doesn't seem to do anything. I'm sure we can all think of times like that, and maybe for some of us, that's us right now. Maybe you're in the midst of a relationship breakdown. Someone you loved has caused you great pain and great harm. They've abandoned you, and you've cried out to God for help, and yet he hasn't helped. Things are just as bad now as they were before you cried out for help. Or maybe you're being bullied at school. As you lie in bed every morning, you feel sick to the pit of your stomach at the thought of going to face it again. And so you cry out to God for help. And yet, he hasn't helped. The bullying is just as bad now as it was before you cried out for help. Or maybe your mum or your dad or your best friend has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. They only have weeks or months left to live and you see them wasting away before your eyes. And through your tears, you've cried out to God for help. And yet, he hasn't. They're just as sick now as they were before you cried for help. See, this is the reality of life. Sometimes we cry out to God for help and he doesn't seem to answer. He leaves us waiting. And so we cry out, God, why won't you help? Why do you allow us to keep suffering? And certainly that's what we see in the story. Jesus waits and apparently he waits for too long. 
Because when he finally arrives, Lazarus is dead and in fact has been dead for four days. And as he gets there, Martha, Lazarus' sister, comes out to meet Jesus. And what she says is just heartbreaking. Have a look at verses 21 and 22. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. It's such a simple statement, yet it's filled with so much yearning. If only, if only you had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. If only. Yet in her longing, still, she has faith that even now, her Lord can help. And so Jesus replies to her that Lazarus will rise again. And like many first century Jews, Martha believed in an end time resurrection of God's people. And so she says in verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But even as she says it, you can almost hear her thinking, thinking, I know he'll rise again, but what about now? Why won't you help me? now. And I'm certain that this resonates with many of us. For those of us who are Christians, we have the promise of eternal life. The ultimate promise that one day Jesus will return and put everything right. We know that. But it doesn't always help. Our pain and our suffering is real and it's urgent. It isn't healed by some far away hope, as true as that hope might be. And so we echo Martha's thinking, yes, but what about now? And so that's why Jesus' responses are so important and it's so uplifting. Because as Jesus replies, we see him completely shift the dynamic. In verses 25 and 26, he looks into this grieving woman's eyes and this is what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, all Martha wants is to get her brother back. And yet, as Jesus speaks to this broken-hearted woman, he offers her an even greater hope. He says, actually, your greatest need is not to have Lazarus back. Your greatest need is me, because I am the resurrection and the life. So it's quite a shocking thing to say, and what it makes clear beyond a doubt is that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just someone offering good guidance for life. He says that he is life, life in the face of suffering. And for Martha to know and to realize that is the greatest good that could ever happen to her. And so why does God allow so much suffering? Well, there's much that can be said about it. And it's not easy to give a short or succinct answer. There's lots of reasons, as we considered before. But here we see at least one of the reasons. It's because it drives us to Jesus and the life that can be found in Him and in Him alone. See, it's in the middle of her pain and her suffering as tears are coming down her face. It's right then that Martha confesses that Jesus is Lord. And so why does God allow suffering? 
Well, at least in part because it drives us to Jesus. It's difficult and it's painful and it's certainly not enjoyable to go through. But we can take heart that God can and does work through our suffering to bring about a great good. And we all know that sometimes suffering now is needed for a greater good. My son Levi just turned one uh, last Friday, actually. And one of the things that he's well experienced at now are vaccination needles. He's a tough little man and he handles them well, but even so, they're still not enjoyable for him. And as Cassie holds him, as a stranger jabs a bit of metal into his arm, there's no way that she can explain it to him. As he looks at her through tears of betrayal, she can't explain to him that he has to suffer now for a greater good. And in the same way, Martha doesn't know the answer for why she's suffering now. And we won't always have the answer in the moment. But God is good and God has good reasons for it. And here, the good reason is to make Martha cling more tightly to Jesus. But the incredible thing is that God doesn't sit distantly up in heaven, cold and detached, as he deals out suffering for our good. No, what we see here is that God weeps alongside us at the pain and the suffering. That's what we see as the story continues. Martha's sister Mary comes down, she falls at Jesus' feet and she repeats what Martha said. And Jesus looks at her in her distress and he looks at those around her in their distress and he's deeply moved. Have a look at verses 30, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He then asks where the body is and they take him to it. And when he gets there, we see the shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. It's staggering that one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who is God, weeps. He weeps at suffering and at death. In one sense, though, we might find it quite a strange response. Maybe you're thinking, but couldn't Jesus have so easily spared those tears if he just healed Lazarus to begin with? That's what some there are thinking. In verse 37, they say, couldn't Jesus have stopped Lazarus from dying? But as we've seen already, he allowed it to happen to bring about a greater good, to bring Mary and Martha to cling to him as the resurrection and the life. But even so, Jesus doesn't take delight in the suffering. It breaks his heart that this is necessary. See, that's the incredible thing about God. Yes, he has good reasons for allowing suffering. But even in the midst of them, he still weeps alongside us. He weeps alongside those of us who are going through the torment of cancer. He weeps alongside those of us who have just lost our job and our livelihood. He weeps alongside those of us who are fighting the emptiness of, left by the death of a dearly loved one. See, in the midst of our suffering, God is not distant. He cares about us and he weeps alongside us. But he doesn't just mourn with us. 
he also has the solution. See, what we see in verses 33 and 38, the word or the way it's translated is often something like deeply moved. Jesus was deeply moved. But the Greek word is embromeomai, uh, and what it actually has the sense of is the indignant snort of a horse. And so what it shows us is that Jesus doesn't just weep alongside us. He's also indignant and outraged. He hates suffering. He hates death. And so it drives him to deal with it for us. Because as our passage continues, Jesus comes to the tomb and he says, open it up. Those there with him say, maybe that's not a good idea. He's been in there four days and he's starting to smell. But Jesus says, do it anyway. He then prays and he shouts, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. See, it's incredible. Jesus defeats death. He undoes the suffering. And as good as it is here that he did that, actually, he did it in an even greater way. Because Jesus came and suffered and died on the cross to give the ultimate victory over suffering and death. See, Jesus hates our suffering and death so much that he suffered and died to rid us of it. And so, ultimately, what's God's answer to suffering? It's the cross. It's the cross. Where he took on suffering himself to do away with it. And ultimately, that's why we can have hope in the face of suffering. Both hope for now, but also for the future. It gives us hope and it gives us comfort now. It gives us comfort in the arms of a loving God who cares about us and who's experienced our suffering. Who has experienced suffering for our sake. And we also have a hope for the future that one day because of the cross, suffering will be done away with. The final book of the Bible is a book called Revelation and it talks about what the future holds and in particular, it paints this incredible picture of heaven. And right near the end of the book, in Revelation 21 verse 4, it says that one day God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. See, that's the future we have to look forward to for those of us who trust in Jesus' death on the cross. And so then, how do we answer Stephen Fry when he cries out with such anger at God? How do we answer the cry of our own hearts as we cry out, God, why do you allow so much suffering? Well, what we know for sure is that God is good and God has good reasons, even if we don't always know what they are in the midst of our suffering. And so then, what do we do in the face of our suffering? Well, if you're not yet a Christian, then the best thing you can do in the face of your suffering is to put your hope in the cross. Listen to the warning cry that suffering is. Listen to it and repent. Put your hope in Jesus' death and the price it paid for your sins. Let your suffering drive you to the cross. And if you're already a Christian then there's a whole spectrum of things that God could be doing in you, for you, through your suffering. 
And you may never know what the specific reasons are for why you're suffering. But remember this. God is good and God has good reasons for allowing your suffering. And so in your suffering, cling to Christ and cling to the cross where God has proved his love for you. And so as we close, I want to share this story with you. I was chatting with a friend recently and she was telling me about one of her friends and this friend of her friend's father was diagnosed with lung cancer. And sadly, as is often the case with cancer, it was too far gone to do anything about it. And so he was put into palliative care. And it's just, just terrible, isn't it? I know that many of us have experienced cancer ourselves or cancer with loved ones and we know just how horrendous that is. But do you know what happened? Over the last few months of his life, many people shared with him the hope of Christ. Hope in the face of suffering. Hope in the face of cancer. Hope even in the face of death. And even though previously in his life he had resisted and rejected, in God's kindness he became a Christian a few weeks before he died. And as his daughter then spoke at his funeral, she said something quite amazing. She thanked God for her dad's cancer. I mean, how amazing is that? Why did she do that? Why could she say something that sounds so incredible? Well, it's because in something, even as horrendous as that, God was able to work the greatest good imaginable, the salvation of her father's eternal soul. And so she said that she rejoices along with her dad, knowing that he's with Christ, her saviour, and his saviour. I mean, how incredible that someone could say that, even in the face of losing their father. But she went on, actually, and she shared how actually the cancer was a blessing in disguise for her as well. Because it strengthened her in her own faith. She didn't see it as a time where God had abandoned her, but quite the opposite. It was a time where he was with her in the midst of her suffering. She could find comfort in the arms of God, knowing that he is able to bring good even from evil. And she said she actually grew in her faith over that time. See, this is the reality of who God is. A God so good and so powerful that he can even use times of terrible suffering to bring about great good. And so I don't know what suffering you might be experiencing today. And my heart breaks for you as you go through it. But today, in the midst of whatever suffering it is, God is saying to you, come to me, I feel your pain, I feel your suffering, and ultimately, I've solved the problem by my own suffering and death. Will you go to him? Let's pray. Great God above, we do confess that we do find suffering and pain so difficult. We find it hard to know what the purpose is as we suffer. But we ask that you would give us great comfort to know that you are good and you have good reasons for it. And so when we suffer, please help us to find comfort in your arms. Please draw us close to you and please remind us of the cross where you died 
and suffered for our sake to deal with suffering and pain once and for all. And so when we're suffering, may you remind us of that great truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.